Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I hit the ball first time, and there it was in the back of the net. Motivation, yeah. motivation, motivation, the three M's. That's, that's perverse. In, in a football field, with kids watching. Ladies and gentlemen, England will be playing four, four, f***ing two. And that boy is out to take a penalty. Eight bloody one. I'm just saying to the colleague, referee's got me the sack. Thank you ever so much for that, won't you? Hello and welcome to Beyond the Touchline, a new football podcast that's, well, it's not actually about football. My name's David Hartrick, you may know my voice from the Football Fives podcast or possibly the Styles Council, uh, and over the coming weeks, months and hopefully years, we'll be looking at all aspects of football culture from Roy of the Rovers to Delroy of the Rovers and from When Saturday Comes the Magazine to When Saturday Comes the <laughs> Film, shudder. Um we will be delving into TV, film, song, books, comics, games, shirts, shorts, socks and more. And who's we? Uh, well, let me introduce my very own Shearer and Sutton. Uh, firstly, on my virtual left is uh, podcaster extraordinaire, Liverpool fan, regular When Saturday Comes contributor, uh, Seb Patrick. Seb, how are you? I'm alright. I, I don't know which I'd, I'd rather not be out of Shearer and Sutton. Um, <laughs> I think, I, I think I think as a footballer, I prefer Shearer, but as a person, I prefer Sutton. I know that's not your view. Um, By way of just a little opening introduction, I want you to give me your favourite ever football song, but I don't want you to tell me the reasons why. I just want the audience to be able to silently judge you for a minute. (laughs) Uh, This time, brackets will... No, hang on. Brackets this time will get it right by the England 1982 World Cup squad. Uh, so that leaves Shearer or Sutton delete as appropriate uh, on my virtual right. And that's Dennis Hurley, the sports writer and man behind the wonderful Museum of Jerseys and Squad Numbers blog. Uh, two sites never knowingly lacking in detail, it would be fair to say. Uh, Dennis, how are you? I'm not bad, David, thanks. Never, never knowingly lacking in self-awareness either. 
<laughs> I, I'm going to ask you your favourite ever football film, and again, I don't want any explanation, just so people can silently judge you. I see. When you asked said favourite song, I was thinking favourite song. I didn't. I didn't realise I was going to be blindsided. But I am going to uh, be very obvious and say Fever Pitch. Yeah, well, it's obvious, but it's not a bad choice, and we will come to that at some point in this pod's life. Um, we have an opening question, because we're a podcast, and by law, you have to have an opening question. Uh, we are covering this week on our first pod um, quite a big subject, really, which is the Damned United in, in both book and film. Um, so it, it led to a fairly obvious opening question, really, which is is which footballing moment, man or team... Do you think you you'd like to see given the damned United treatment? Um, we'll go to you, Seb, first. Um, I this very much plays into I think the kind of film that that I'm a bit of a sucker for. Um, I think Hollywood in recent years has proven itself very adept at doing. Uh, dramatizations of uh, America in the 1970s, um, uh, England in the 1970s, not so much as as we'll come to on <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, so I would like to see a film about the glory years of the North American Soccer League, uh, particularly the period from kind of the, the mid 70s through to the early 80s, um, because that's that's kind of when it was at its peak of its its glamour, its razzmatazz, its its public interest, and in the European stars, uh, European and South American stars, I should say that that they got to play in it i also because i as we'll kind of come to see i i am probably kind of the i'm the film guy on this podcast i do have some casting ideas if you'd like to hear them <laughs> go ahead uh so i was kind of looking for sort of age appropriate actors as much as i could the the first choice is he's maybe a little young but i think he's got the the look and the, the gravitas to pull it off which is daniel kaloya as pele um decent i think you go for chris hemsworth as bobby moore you know that kind of clean cut blonde you know he is australian but he but he has relatively convincingly played british people from the 70s in the past um and further capturing a bit of that rush spirit um uh, daniel Bruhl as franz beckenbauer um a little bit of a left field choice for johan cruyff which is an actor called tom brook who you may recognize from his appearances recently in preacher and bodyguard um, he's not a massively famous actor, but if you look at a picture of him, um, he's he's yeah, you know, know all you've exactly got to do is give him the mean, wig, yeah. and actually you've got a pretty convincing Cruyff lookalike there. Um, I struggle with George Best, especially because I think the, the story would kind of hinge on him because he was kind of there for the longest, and you've got the kind of longest age range to deal with. I really just looked at kind of Northern Irish actors um, who were kind of famed for being quite attractive, and all I could really land on was Jamie Dornan. I'm I'm not totally happy with that choice, but you know maybe it's a case of you cast an unknown. Uh, and finally, I would like to cast Thomas Turgoose as uh, the young Peter Beardsley. <laughs> In a Vancouver white capture. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> uh, what, what an image that would be. Um, yeah, I think that's a decent choice. And I have just decided that I think there should be a slight spirit of competition. So I think I will award a winner once all three <laughs> have given us given our answers here. Uh, and yeah, I think that is a... Uh, there's a book by Ian Plenderleaf, another uh, splendid When Saturday Comes contributor, uh, which off the top of my head, I think it's called Rock and Roll Soccer. Mm, yeah. Excellent read on the, however excessive you think Nazel was, you're not even close. <laughs> Dennis, give us your answer. Um, I uh, my, my answer would obviously be far less comprehensive than Sabres because I was thinking of it from a book point of view rather than a film point of view even though it obviously 
the, the, the question should have lent itself more to a film. My, my jokey answer was Cabo Diawara's Arsenal career. But <laughs> you probably run out of material beyond hitting the crossbar four times against Leeds. But what I would like to see, given the fictional treatment, is Kevin Keegan's last year in, in of the first spell um, in charge of Newcastle. We'll say from from that's a great show. Christmas ninety five mm. to when he resigned at Christmas ninety six. So you're you're taking in the signing of Aspria and how they still kind of were keeping it together, and then the 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 rather famous uh, demise, and then the following season. As it just began, the the magic began to to just seep out bit by bit after the the five nil win, uh, in October time. Um, so I I was thinking that more as a book, probably from Keegan's point of view, uh, and just what was going through his head, uh, and I'm frantically googling now. Uh, I googled the phrase "looks like Kevin Keegan," but no actors were coming up for me. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe Kevin Klein to play um, Terry McDermott <laughs> if he grew the moustache again. Uh, uh, do you know? I, I I think relevant to the subject we've got coming up. I think Michael Sheen could could play Kevin Keegan. Of, he of that he era. probably could. Yeah, to be fair. Um, with, with a Dame Judi Dench, she can play anything. <laughs> yeah, and she wouldn't even need to colour the hair. I think I think that's a great shout, Dennis. That photo of a Spreer signing in the snow in his fur coat in the <laughs> yeah. car park remains one of my favourite football-related photos of all time. Yeah, or having um, the glass of wine the, the day of his debut against uh, yeah. Middlesbrough. Yeah. I, Tina, I, there's a whole book, film, 12, 12-part television series in Spreer's time in Newcastle anyway, but... Um, my shout is uh, Lazio, 72-79, to 79, um, which was the partly the Giorgio Shinaglia years. Um, they get promoted in 1972. They have a bit of a mad... 72-73 is a bit of a mad season. They finish uh, second due to a bonkers last day where they concede in the last minute to Napoli. Juve score in the last minute to take the title. But then that sets up 73-74 where they were just... A brilliant side, basically. Absolutely superb. Scored 45 in 30 Serie A A games, um, which, believe it or not, listeners, is a massive amount for Serie A back then. Um, And then they end up just sort of sliding down and down and down, and eventually they end the sort of decade as relegation fodder. But what's what's the interesting sort of cinematic, fictional, novelised angle... Um, it was just a complete soap opera. You had training was an absolute war zone. They had a, a manager called uh, Tommaso Mastrelli who used to basically active encur- actively encourage them to literally be taking lumps out of each other in the showers, never mind on the training pitch. But somehow they sort of shackled it and got them all going the right way. Uh, you know, whenever they played, and he dies in the middle of the decade at, at age fifty-four. You've got the the brilliant midfielder uh, Luciano Re- 
Kekone, who gets shot and killed in 1970, I think it's 1976, because he decides to pretend to rob his friend's jewellery store, <laughs> um, walks in there pretending he's got a gun in his hand and his, his friend took a shotgun out and shot him, killed him instantly. You've got a team who, when they're off on Retoros and they'd get bored, they used to drive around the village with guns shooting out the streetlights and uh, cut park car headlights. Um, they they used to go parachuting together. And let me tell you now, I, football clubs would be reluctant to send their stars parachuting now. In the 1970s, it was an absolutely ridiculous thing to be doing for anyone, never mind a football team. Um it just it's just a it's a mad story it's worth googling and and looking up um and it, it it's everything from like Giorgio Sinaglia, who's the sort of star striker who spends most of his time hanging around with the Camorra crime family to like i say it's got murder sex drink drugs bribery it's just an incredible story i honestly think i said i'm going to award a winner I can genuinely sit here and say I would watch all three of them. So having said there was going to be a winner, I'm going to actually say for the first inaugural opening question, that's a draw. Because I I would happily, happily devote as many hours as you gave me of all three of those stories. I really would. That that's better than you choosing your own as the winner. Anyway, yeah, which, yeah. You know, yeah. Was, was on the table when you said there was going to be a winner. So we'll see yeah. how that plays out on yeah. future episodes. The, the father Ted raffle. <laughs> I was fully expecting mine to be the correct answer, <laughs> but no. I, I'm. If I had to pick one, that time for Keegan was, well, it was. It yeah. I mean, that's another story that's got a little bit of of all human emotion, hasn't it? Really. So po- possibly Keggy. Um, what, what I want to know is, I presume the same actor is playing Giorgio Chinaglia in both of your films. Yes. Yeah, that would be the through line. Yeah, so so Nazel could effectively yeah. could become the companion piece slash sequel. Exactly. Yeah. One one is. Um, Better Call Saul and the other is um, Breaking Bad. Yeah, and there you go. We have just birthed the Shinagula Cinematic Universe. <laughs> uh, right, we shall uh, move on and get into the meat of our main subject then. Well, I might as well tell you now. You lot may all be internationals and have won all the domestic honours there are to win under Don Revy. But as far as I'm concerned, the first thing you can do for me is to chuck all your medals and all your caps and all your pots and all your pans into the biggest flipping dustbin you can find because you've never won any of them fairly. You've done it all by blooming cheating. Mr William Bremner, you're the captain and a good one. But you're no good to the team and you're no good to me if you're suspended. I want you fit for every game and I want good, clean, attractive football from my captain starting next week at the Charity Shield. You, Irishman, God gave you skill, intelligence, and the best passing ability in the game. What God did not give you was six studs to wrap around another player's knee. So, for podcast number one, we are covering the Damn United on page and screen. So, I can't believe there's too many people listening to this podcast who won't have come across the Damn United in one form or other. But, um, brief history um, the Damn United. UTD, which is important because that's one of the defining <laughs> differences between both, um, 
It's the book written by David Peace, uh, released in 2006. It was a bit of a slow burn. It reviewed very well, um, but the first print run was quite low, and it it's really did build over sort of word or mouth, word of mouth really. As somebody who works in publishing, I can tell you football fiction is a surprisingly difficult sell. And the Damn United really did sort of came and blow apart everybody's uh, sort of preconceived notions of what it would do because by the time it got into its second and third years, before the, the film actually came out, it really had become... I mean, it was groundbreaking, really. It was It was... It, it almost kick-started a genre. Um, but it was it was a slow burner, and it was um, it, not difficult to find or anything like that, but it it grew uh, thanks to Kindle and e-book. It became quite a, a success that way. And it, it, by the time the film came out, it had become a... A phenomenon is too strong a word, but it had become very much its own thing, and it was uh, the film was pretty exciting when it was first announced. The film was directed by Tom Hooper, um, written by Peter Morgan, um, The Damned United, U-N-I-T-E-D. Uh, that was a difference that was, was demanded, I believe. It was uh, a legal point of difference that they wanted to make. Also, for the uh, American markets, not being able to understand the <laughs> UTD reference. But also, there was a, apparently there was a, a quite a... If, if you go back into the annals of, of early forums, etc., apparently there was a, do, a lot of discussion of Leeds United using UTD, Man United using UTD, who had done it first, who did it, in horrible air quotes, belong to. Football fans, not often prone to such nonsense, but believe it or not, they got a bit tribal about it. Uh, but anyway, um, the film came out in 2009, Quite a low-budget film, uh, largely financed by the BBC. Didn't make its money back at the box office, but it has very much made its money back now. Uh, it was very successful. On It got quite an early DVD release. It was one of those films that sort of came out of the cinemas and straight onto DVD. and was on the BBC, I think, less than a year after release as well. Um, the film reviewed pretty well, um, but there was there were... A, there was quite a bit of resistance to certain aspects, which I don't want to go into now because we're going to discuss them as we sort of chat and, and go along. It is impossible to do this discussion without launching almost straight into comparisons. And I think one of the things I, I think it's worth asking straight from the off, and I'm going to go to you, Dennis, first here. Would you, somebody who has no knowledge of this um, and hasn't dipped their toe in either... Do you direct them to the book first or do you direct them to the film? I would 100% direct them to the film, but maybe that's my own bias in that I generally do prefer the book of something to the film just because, by definition, it carries more information. It, it tells you more about what characters are thinking or, in, in this case, reminiscing about. I And in this particular case, I would think that the book is far, far superior. It, it, it's able to cover a wider breadth of, of both events and incidents and feeling and emotions as well. Um, so nobody has asked me, but I, I, would, I would definitely tell them to read the book first and then watch the film, but don't expect it to, to hit anywhere near the heights of the book. 
No, they they're two uh, as we will as we will go into. They're two very very different animals that. <sighs> the film obviously uses the book as the source text, but as we'll go into, there is a very different feel and tone and approach on screen. I think, Seb. Do you think that's a fair comment? I think it's a fair comment that the the that the, the, the book is better than the film. That said, I think I think the film is trying to be a bit more for everyone, um, and probably succeeds at that because I can imagine people. I can't imagine anyone hating the film, um, you know, unless they really do have. Um, you know, uh, a vested interest in it in terms of being one of the people featured in it. Although even then, with a couple of exceptions, I don't think the film is necessarily particularly harsh on on anyone in in that sense. I can understand people really, you know, even people who aren't actually directly invested in the story, really not getting on with the book because it's got a very distinctive style. Um, so much of it, I think, hinges on whether you buy into. I was going to say buy into Clough, but really it's buy into the version of Clough that, that, that the book is has created. Although, personally, from what I know and have read about Clough, I, I think they're fairly close. A lot of people say that they're not, but they, I like to think of the real Clough as being like the, the guy in the book because I really like the guy in the book, even though he's an arsehole. Yeah. So, um, you know, I for me, I started reading the book and I was drawn in by the style and by the narration and what was going through this guy's head. And so I just absolutely loved the mm. book. And the film doesn't have that. But equally, for someone else, the film doesn't have that in the sense it might not be off-putting. So. I think revisiting it for this podcast, one of the things that struck me was that if if the film existed on its own, if, if the book had never been written, if this was just a purely a mm. screenplay that had been filmed... I I honestly think all three of us would be sitting here saying this is one of the best uh, again using air quotes football films there has ever been, but the the Possibly. problem is you have this book which I hadn't read for quite a few years, and it's it's mm. to tell the readers a little bit about how the sausage is made. We all had the same experience via WhatsApp going back to the book of. Yeah. <laughs> bloody hell this really is a fantastic read isn't it and it's it's rare that you re i mean i i reread stuff quite a lot i'm quite a, if you know if i really like a book um i do go back to it but it, i find it's rare to reread something and be pretty much unable to put it down mm. when you've already read it once and actually with this i was i just you know when i wasn't reading it i wanted to be reading it and this was a book i had already read like 10 years ago so yeah you know. dennis is let's take the book first. Is Brian Clough a hero or a villain in the book? I think he's your your classic anti-hero, isn't he? Mm. You know, you you're <laughs> yeah. even 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 rereading it the last couple of weeks. I've still been kind of willing him on and and almost hoping that there's a different ending because you, you want him <laughs> to do well. It, it makes sense that you know inverted commas best manager in England taking over the league champions um and then you're you're like he he sits him down for this this talk and goes through them one by one and you're like yeah he's making sense you know he, these these are valid points like Johnny Giles shouldn't be raking his studs down guys legs uh, but but he is a good player he, he he's listing the positives and just telling him to cut out the negatives but then you know he 
it's not enough for him. He has to just throw in the line at the end about, you know, throwing the medals in the bin, which, you know, uh, if you look at any, you know, management handbook or whatever, you know, how to be a boss, you know, you get the employees <laughs> on side, first of all, and then you can start kind of um, moulding them in, in your own likeness. But Clough in the book, as, I, as, as Seb said, you know, we don't know exactly how close it is. We're dealing with three different cloughs here, really. Real cloth, book cloth and film cloth. But book cloth, he does seem to have this chip on his shoulder that, you know, even Mick Bates asks him, uh, how, what position am I going to be playing? And he, he just gives him a glib answer. You know, it, it's like he's, he's self-sabotaging. But even despite that and all the, the drinking and the, the smoking and everything, you're still rooting for him, even though you know he's making some terrible mistakes. Yeah, you get this when you're reading it. You there's like you were saying, we're dealing with three cloughs. You're dealing with two cloughs in the book because you've got Darby Clough, <laughs> who comes across yeah. as this light sort of young, um, sort of rightly arrogant because he did have something and he was making a difference and he was getting results. But without some of the some of the, the the harder edges that we see later on, and I really like that that aspect of sort of flipping quite often flipping between the two from page to page and getting you really do get a sense of the journey, don't you? Did did, you, did that come across to you, Seb? Yeah, there's there's some really nice and and very deliberate mirroring, and I don't think the film manages to do it in the same way and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about some of that that stuff stuff shortly but um you know i think in the film it's more the film uses the flashbacks to the derby time to sort of uh, to to color the the present day stuff and and to fill you in on the background of the present day stuff and and the background of the antagonism whereas i think what the book does is to find well find or invent we should say um a lot of moments that echo each other in in the past and the present, and it's not that they're directly linked. You know, it's it's not that you know the the film has. Sorry, I don't. I keep alluding to something that we're going to talk about. But the film makes this big deal out of the handshake thing, and really makes the whole premise hinge on that. The book's not doing that so much. You you see how Darby Clough informs Leeds Clough, but as I say, it's it's do, it is done very much in this. Um, it's almost like you're kind of you're taking a filter on and off. You know, you you are showing the same person going through some of the same motions, uh, but just kind of putting a different colour filter on it. I think I think the book does that really nicely in a few places. Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's it's such a simple device that when they try to do it in the film, um, and I'm going to come to you in a minute on this, Dennis. It, it's whereas you get that sort of nice sensation of a journey in the book. When they do it in the film, um, it's much more jarring somehow. It doesn't. It just doesn't quite work. You, you, instead of that journey, you seem to also. It's almost like you're being shown the complete opposite ends of the spectrum, and it it doesn't quite work as well, does it, Dennis? Absolutely. Yeah. I I waited until last night to watch the film just so it would be fresh in my memory, and I I definitely got that feeling that. It, it it doesn't doesn't carry the same effect. The the flashbacks obviously in the book it's easier to know it's a flashback because you have the italics. Whereas on the screen you have to 
keep keep putting up the year and the the counter going up and down and it was it was overdone i felt where in in the book it was easy to have a, a constant swapping and you're kind of seeing what's going on in his head whereas in the film i felt it should have been done a bit more sparingly there were there were things included that didn't need to be included for the purposes of the story and i felt that as a result it didn't actually convey how things went so bad so quickly at Leeds because there wasn't enough time given to that. You didn't have the sense of, um, you know, the, the day by day of, of the book, you know, where it's effectively each each day is a chapter and, and you can kind of see things just slightly decaying bit by bit. Whereas in the, in the film, you know, you, you had the charity shields and then you have the, the first game and it's like, oh, they've played two and lost two. And and you're like, you, you haven't been given a, a full sense of, of all the things that are going on in the background. Even, even you know, the fact that, um, that the film doesn't feature Sid Owen and, um, and Morris Lindley, who I felt were, they, they were two very good instruments in the book. Um, and, and I did, did feel that the book was, was far better at, um, at, at flitting between the two timelines, I suppose you'd call them. Mm. Well, this is this is one of the things I've I've got down on my notes here that I'd forgotten until I revisited the film that you've got this book that sort of luxuriates in the detail really and and you you find yourself really enjoying just moments of Clough even sort of daydreaming and you know wondering out loud the film is only ninety minutes long you know it's in and out it it's it's very very quick and it's. I mean, I I come away from most films these days thinking, well, you could take 20 minutes out of that. This is genuinely one film that I sit there thinking, well, it, it feels like there's half an hour missing. It, it it feels like you could put half an hour back into this film and you would not you would not ruin the, the pace of it or the structure of it, but what you would do is, is fill in some of those gaps. Do you think that's a fair comment, Seb? Yeah, it's it does sort of. I mean, I, this is this is almost certainly something where I don't know if having read the book colours it too much because you're aware of of how much stuff is missing. Whereas I don't, I wouldn't know if seeing the film um, just purely on its own merits, not knowing the story, if you would feel like there was anything missing because I think I think the film does grasp at uh, a through line and I, I i don't think it shows i don't think it does enough to develop it but the, but the film latches on to this thread of um clough it clough it presents clough as a young idealistic manager at derby you know who is who still ha- kind of has that arrogance and stuff but who who idolizes leeds mm. and revy and then the handshake incident and the match happen, and that basically turns him into a monster because he becomes obsessed with beating Revy and, and Leeds. And it's it actually it, it it presents the idea that everything that he does at Derby and everything that ultimately ends up sabotaging his time at Derby is as a result of that. 
him taking the Leeds job is as a result of that and him being utterly unable to succeed at the Leeds job is as a result of that. And a, a, as a film, as a, as a structure to a film and also with, with running through it as well, the fact that this, this Leeds situation has destroyed his friendship with Peter Taylor and he salvages that friendship at the end when he gets out of the Leeds situation and he realises that he needs Taylor. All of those things, I think, work from a dramatic point of view. So... From that perspective, I don't know if the film is is too short or is lacking stuff. But watching it from the perspective of knowing more about both the reality and the book, and we'll, we'll come to the relationship with reality because I think that's a very separate conversation mm, to yeah. the, the relationship with the book. But uh, yeah, you know, knowing all of the the richness, and you always know with an adaptation, you are going to lose things and, you, and you're going to simplify. And you know, I'm not against making dramatic decisions for that reason, but it's yeah, as, as Dennis says, you know, there there are specific elements of of the book where you just think, well, you could have had that, you could have had that character in there and made a little more of that. Um, and it and the film just it it doesn't seem that interested in exploring any of the people around him. Um, you know, the the leads players, with the exception of uh, Giles and Bremner don't even need to any none of them need to be played by actors. Um you know you've you've got Jimmy Gordon in there but you don't really get a sense of their relationship. Um if anything it's a bit more kind of focused on on his family who in in the book are actually barely present. Um so it's you know I say I I think I think it's I think it feels more like a missed opportunity if what you want to see more of are things like those characters and also the matches because what's surprising is for, a, for a, is that for a football film there is very little yeah, football bare, in this like in terms of on-pitch yeah. action and in some ways when you're talking about films we'll, over the course of doing this podcast I hope we'll get to talk about lots of examples of on-pitch action which 90% of the time is done appallingly so I'm, I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad decision not to show it but they do such a good job of replicating the well, at least what I imagine to be the look and feel of the 1970s, I'd like to see a bit more of those 1970s matches reimagined. Dennis Clough is is sort of a classic anti-hero. I think in the film he veers between hero and villain really almost in from scene to scene, but ultimately as a hero. There is one person in both book and on film who is unabashedly a hero, isn't there? And that's Peter Taylor. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think the film canonises him almost, um, especially the ending. Um, yes. And yeah. I feel it, it didn't need that, but I would agree overall. He, he is the, um, he's the good angel on Clough's shoulder. Uh, he's he's his, his better nature. He's... he's uh, he he tempers the uh, the extremes that that Clough all too readily seems to go to, uh, and I think um, Timothy Spall is is a very good uh, a very good choice as as Taylor. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a pity, I suppose, that you know he wasn't with him at Leeds, and that he would have featured more. But obviously, if he wasn't with him at Leeds, Leeds would have gone on to win five league titles in a row. So you know, it's, yeah. uh, that'd be an interesting counterfactual book to read, maybe, or, uh, mm. or a film to make. But yeah, he, he you can see in the book, um, kind of the, the strain that that it's put that's put on Taylor, and it's it's a lot easier to understand in the book why he has the heart attack rather than in the film, yeah. where it just kind of seems to come out of nowhere. Yeah, mm. the having having read 
quite a, a various cloth books. The whenever they talk about Taylor, you always get there's always this feeling that somehow he was like the you know the brains behind the business and i think often think that's quite unfair because brian clough was a, a incredible talent in and of his own right but i think what we didn't get enough of um which when you've read a lot of clough biographies and clough books is that the one thing that taylor used to do and used to do quite regularly is he was the one man who would stand up to brian clough you know he was the one man who would say no to him um and Brian Clough needed that because, you know, his management by conflict with with anyone and everyone in the football club uh, to do what it, it took to get the team going the right way was supplemented by Taylor being the one to stand up to him and say, no, you've gone too far. And it was never a good cop, bad cop relationship or anything like that. But I don't know as obviously you know I I'm too too young to have met either or anything like that but I do feel both book and film could have leaned into that a little bit more if I'm if I'm honest um but it it's I I think Timothy Spall as Peter Taylor it almost does that thing now where the problem I have is that when people talk about Peter Taylor I don't actually see Peter Taylor anymore I see Timothy Spall as Peter Taylor <laughs> I think that's reflective, isn't it, of, you know, Taylor did not spend that time in in the public mm. eye. Uh, you know, there 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 isn't all of that interview footage of him, so you can't sort of, you can't picture him in the same way, whereas, yeah, Timothy Spall give you know, well, he gives a Timothy Spall of a performance, yeah. so, you know, he, he does what you'd expect. There's a, it's interesting what you say about actually about the, the good cop, bad cop thing, because I, I think the book does lean in a bit more to to that being the dynamic, and particularly, there, there is a particular scene where after a game, it's the it's the fantastic uh, scene where he goes around every single one of the Derby players and says to them, "Are you trying to get me sacked? Are you trying to get me <laughs> yeah, sacked? Are you yeah, trying to get me yeah. sacked?" And then, except to uh, who is it that he's? Is it Alan Hinton, Hinton at the yeah. end? He just says, "You you played very well, Alan," and, and walks out. And then there is a bit in the narration where it says he's done this, and he knows that Peter's going to go round one by one and put his arm around them and say, "You know, he didn't really mean it. He's just under pressure." And I think I think the implication carried by that is that Clough has carried the same approach into dealing with the Leeds players in the expectation that there'll be somebody who'll go around after him and go don't listen to him he's just being a dickhead he does actually respect what you've achieved we know we're going to do great things here and all that kind of stuff and he doesn't have that at Leeds and it's not the only thing that he's lacking obviously but it's a quite you know it's a from a again from a dramatic and from a narrative point of view that's quite an easy kind of parallel and point to make that I think as I say the, the book I think kind of leaves implicit and as, I, as, as you say I mean I, th- I think it's not necessarily reflective of the the real Clough and Taylor because it was a more complex dynamic than that but but book Clough I think it works for but the film doesn't really because the film hasn't shown you them doing that at Derby um it, it it doesn't you know the, the film very much leans into more this narrative of he was nice when he was at Derby but then he got a bit self-obsessed. And it, it never shows him taking anything out on the players. It's always the conflict with Longson. Um, and I think, yeah, so you, so then you, you don't... You almost... You see his approach with the Leeds players, and it's like, well, where has this come from? Because he wasn't like this at yeah. Derby. Whereas actually, yeah, no, he was like that at Derby. It's just, it worked. Yeah. I, one of the real... You've, you've mentioned him by name, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to move it on slightly now. One of the real... 
uh, things I don't like in the film version is turning Sam Longson into a cartoon character. It it really jars. I do like Jim Broadbent, but yeah, yeah right. Jim Broadbent is a fantastic actor, but there is a definite element of a cartoon character here who is just he is purely there to disagree with everything Brian Clough says, and it mm. it just for me it just it doesn't work. Again, having read an awful lot around his time there. They did have an antagonistic relationship. There's no doubt about that. But A, it didn't start like that. And B, it was antagonistic when Clough got carried away with himself and brought into his own hype. Whereas all you really get on screen is basically, as I said, the cartoon character against, you know, the arrogant Clough. And Mm. those scenes for me just don't work at all. I think we've I think we've ragged on the film a little bit here and I think it's probably worth talking about a couple of things that we actually quite like from the film. So I'm going to give you an open forum Dennis because you I think you've been harshest on the film so far. Pick <laughs> out a couple of things that you think actually work. I loved the match of the 70s feel, you know, to the montage as where mm. it showed um the, the games happening, you know, real footage again but it, you know, it, it was just a quick way of showing uh, Derby's progress and with the, the video printer style score lines and, and things like that. Um, I, I was a big fan of that. It, it provided a period feel, I, I felt, and so did the uh, the FA committee room. It, it, it's exactly <laughs> what you would have imagined it to be like. Um, yeah. With with the the ornate furniture and the was it the the Duke of Edinburgh portrait up behind them? Yeah. Um, and what I liked as well in a masochistic way was the the sign over the door at the baseball ground and the the green grocer's apostrophe <laughs> for officials. <laughs> I think Seb has mentioned it as well. I think the, the one thing the film gets right if not individual scenes, but you're right, that tone of 1970s Northern England, 1970s football on TV. Yeah, absolutely. They do, well, you know, we have criticised the specifics, but when you talk about the broad strokes and the things that sort of you want to sort of, to, to draw you in and get you lost in the film, it does do those things very well, doesn't it? On a similar note, I mean, I think if you're looking specifically at Michael Sheen, and before the film came out and when the trailers and stuff were out, a lot was made of, you know, oh, he's done this great impression of, of Brian Clough. I think when you when you watch the film, I don't always feel he convinces as as the Clough that I've seen footage of. I think physically he's he's just not quite there. And I do think he carries himself a bit differently. And he's kind of doing the voice or he's doing a voice, but it's it's not quite there. However, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's not a good performance and quite the opposite. Like, I, you know, I genuinely think I think for the character that they've created for this film, which is a simplified and significantly more sympathetic version of Brian Clough. And particularly, I really like how he plays that that I even though it's the version that I think is the furthest from reality, the wide-eyed idealistic version, the guy in the early days at Derby, the guy who is so excited about Revy and Leeds coming to Derby and then has his spirit completely crushed, I think he plays that superbly. Um, and you know, I, I do think, as I say, yeah. While, while I, I, I can I can pick holes in whether actually it's as good an impression as everybody made out, 
um and i think i think the interview scene particularly you know the, the, the calendar interview does sort of show that up when you compare it to the real thing but i do think as a as a performance to anchor a film i, I do think it's great i you know I, I think i think he i think he carries a lot when the film is maybe flagging in terms of, of struggling to to actually to find the most interesting story that's actually present in all of this mm. i think the, the figure of reeve is an interesting one isn't it because in the in the book he's this figure that sort of haunts the book mm. um whereas in the film it's obviously by nature of the medium it's in it's a far more direct presence mm, it's like he, he is a character in it yeah rather than, yeah uh, and i must admit that i quite like the approach in the book where he is this uh, the, uh, this sort of shadow following clough round and mm. i think uh, sheen's performance i always think is slightly it's slightly a funny one because i think you're right seb i think he is doing a voice rather than an impression i think he's making some choices I think they're absolutely the right choices to make as well. Don't get me wrong, because I think, I think if you just went and did a straightforward, effective Brian Clough impression, then it's always going to come off as a Brian Clough impression. You're far off better making some choices and and creating a version yourself. Mm. But there are just one or two times where, I don't know, he just. I can't really describe it in more eloquent terms than this, but there are one or two moments where he stops being Brian Clough and starts being Michael Sheen for a minute. Um, <laughs> but it, it is, I think it's as good a version as, as we could possibly get. What were your feelings towards... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Revy in both mediums, Dennis. Um... I like I I understand what you're saying about um about the change in character from book to film, but I I do feel that Colomini is such a good fit for Revy. It would have been yeah. negligent not to not to kind of yeah. increase <laughs> increase uh, his exposure. I, and I'm not just saying that as an Irishman. Um, <laughs> I, I I like both portrayals. Um, it, uh, that, that that is one thing I do like about the film that uh, you know he he is the, this presence. Um, I think actually leaving in the phone call though I don't think was a good idea because it's a different kind of a phone call. Um, yeah. If, if that makes sense. Um, mm. But yeah, you see, in the book it, it's brilliant because he's in the office so often. You know, his office, his table, his chairs, um, and and it, you do really just get the sense of. Of everyone being um, 
be, being kind of part of Revy's leads and Clough just feeling, I suppose, claustrophobic by it all. Um, and one thing I did like in the book, even though it's completely wrong historically, is Clough putting on the, the green goalkeeper's jersey because... The, the cleaning the cleaning lady I love that the cleaning yeah. lady told them that Revy sacked someone for wearing green and like um, obviously that didn't come until he went to Forest and it was to put Peter Shilton back in his box but even though I am a kit nerd and a normal nerd I didn't mind that bit of dramatic license being used yeah I think well I think it's worth going into that but, but just before we start mm-hmm. talking about dramatic license I must admit, I did <laughs> watching this film again. I did think that Cole Meany, I would quite happily watch the the Reavy years at Leeds, you know, dramatised in this style mm. with Cole Meany in that role, quite happily, because there was a lot of stories from that time, you know. Can we recast Billy Bremner though? Because I love Stephen Graham, but that is a piss poor piece of. I, yeah, I would is. fully agree, and the same with Giles, like. You know, I suppose I've seen Johnny Giles on TV an awful lot because he's 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 been an analyst <laughs> here, or he was until a few years ago, and you just do not get any sense of um of Johnny Giles in in the film. I think the problem with both bits of casting there is the accents are, I mean, they're proper Dick Van Dyke's sort of accents, <laughs> yeah. aren't they? Yeah, which- which it, it it makes no I don't know it makes no sense to me to be perfectly honest. The guy the guy playing Jaws is actually Irish, but but is that it, 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 it's a bit like when British actors turn up in American shows and somehow their accents always sound wrong. Yeah, even though even if they're just doing their own. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like they turn everything up to twelve, don't they? Mm, yeah, and it, yeah. it doesn't quite work. I, there's a there's a little bit of an elephant in the room, which is a discussion we've been sort of having on and off on WhatsApp about the dramatic license taken in both book and film mm. that we have to be slightly careful because I didn't realize this, but um, looking into it, there are still one or two people who are have, have, have legally still pursuing various mm. claims. Um, quite famously, Johnny Giles has, has already had a, a court case go through and be processed it's largely to do with the depiction in the film, though there are one or two people who are slightly unhappy with things in the book as well, it would be fair to say. Uh, well, the book got changed, didn't it? I, didn't, yeah. I genuinely don't know. I, I've got a printing from 2007, so you know it's not the first edition, but it's relatively early, and I don't know if this was before or after Giles ha- actually had the book changed. So if it was changed, I don't either. I don't know what was in it before it was changed, or I don't know what was changed because you yeah, know, I've only well, seen it wasn't. One it, it wasn't just one. It wasn't just one section. There were. Mm. I, I mean, I. I think he went. I. I may be wrong here, and I don't want to be wrong, but I think I. I'm sure he went to court with like a list of sort of forty or fifty things, mm. um, and he ended up getting. You know, there was there was a few change, but. There are some dramatic leaps taken, particularly by the film. There are yeah. a few taken by the book. And I I come from this from a publishing point of view, which mm-hmm. uh, gives me leads me to have one viewpoint. I think we all have a slightly different view on this. So I think it's probably best just to do this in a round robin. So we'll start with Dennis. Do you have an issue with the odd inaccuracy or the odd bit of dramatic license used, or does it sort of take you out of the film or book the minute you spot something? Uh, no, it doesn't. Like I was saying, I didn't mind that thing with the the green jersey because it fitted it fitted very well. Um, 
And but then something like in in the film where you hear Tony Gubba uh, saying Derby unseated Leeds as champions, and and it's completely wrong, and there's no need for it to be the case at all. Um, it, it's just it, it's 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 a niggly one. It it doesn't add anything to the story. It doesn't take anything from the story, but it's just it's factually incorrect by whatever two or three years. Um. Uh, but it, it's it's just kind of ones like that that don't need to be made. You know, I, I can completely understand condensing timelines and, you know, slightly changing scenes. Um, but it, it's the ones that are inexplicable that, that, that bug me. Like, mm. I, I think I mentioned it in the WhatsApp um, uh, about, about a book called My Favourite Year. And it's... It one it's it's basically different writers. It's it's an anthology of writers picking their favorite season, uh, watching a club and the Leeds guy. Uh, I have the book here. The Leeds guy's name is Don Watson, and he picks seventy four seventy five. How he used to go to games with a, a guy. He calls him a, a a friendly rival, really rather than a friend. But they they were both Leeds fans and it suited. But after the Luton game, which is Clough's last one. They, they just stayed standing on the terrace and after doing the TV interview, Clough came over and chatted to them and he says, uh, uh, what struck me most was that there was none of the pomposity you saw on TV. Uh, don't listen to all that crap in the papers, he told us, and don't worry, it'll come all right. Cheerio then, lads. And then he added with a gleeful wink, don't get too pissed over the weekend knowing that nothing flatters <laughs> an adolescent more than being taken for an adult. So... That that happened, and obviously Peace read it, and it happened after the Luton game. But in the book, it happens two days after the Luton game, after training. And I don't know why it needs to be transposed when it did actually happen, you know, which mm. fiction makes based on fact. You're reading it thinking, this could all have happened, maybe not in this universe, but in a parallel universe. But he he's taken that and purposely made it wrong. And I, I know I, I probably sound like a complete nitpicker, um, but it, it it's just those, those little ones that do irritate me. Yeah, yeah. I you see, this is the thing. I I'm sort of with you there. I'm a publisher, and I think with something like this, that you have to take a little bit of a print the legend point of view. And the thing is, when it's if you, if you change something quite big because it suits the narrative, or it, you know, like the jumper thing. The jumper is something that we all associate with Clough. We know it's not right, but it fits in there and it works and what have you. I haven't got an issue with that. But you're right, it is the little things that you don't need to change, that you don't need to necessarily do anything with, in truth, that do jar, yeah. that do that that do that don't feel quite right. So you end up with this weird situation where you can change something that's actually quite big and go, well, yeah, I'm happy with that, I'm fine with that. But if you say that was 2-0 when it was actually 2-1, I'm going to be absolutely furious. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So you you say we're coming at this from, from a different perspective. I, th- I think we all have a, a very similar perspective on it. I, 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 I'm similar to you. I'm very much of the view that if you're, you know, I, I appreciate to an extent, uh, obviously you can't outright libel people. But but libeling is not the same thing as telling a story of something that happened that did mm. just saying something that's not true in a clearly fictionalized version of a story is not libel. Libel is specifically about damaging reputation, 
by what you say. And that's why I think particularly, and again, wary of kind of going too much into kind of legal aspects of this, but I believe that the major issue with, with Johnny Giles in particular was the portrayal of the idea that the Leeds players actively tried to get Clough the sack. Yeah. That that's the main thing that they have an issue with, and that's something that I think you I think you can justifiably argue if the film presents that and uh, all the book, film or the, or the book present that as being the case that is potentially libelous and and that's fair enough but equally you know fiction is fiction and even if it's fiction based on history um what is the point of of making it fiction unless you are reconstructing it as a story and this is not just a modern thing this goes you know all the way back to shakespeare's historical plays and earlier than that you know history is there for us to tell stories about and in the telling of those stories we will shape them into a story into a way that makes that story more appealing um, and I think it's quite interesting actually as well. To, but I, th- I think I think Damn United has a, a, a kind of a special case because there are a lot of people who really care about the inaccuracies, who aren't really coming at it from a judging it as a as a film or as a book perspective. They're only interested in does it tell the actual story because it's the those people with the vested interest and I, I, a comparison that i kind of wanted to make actually was with a couple of other films that tell stories relating to sport in the 1970s uh which are rush and battle of the sexes um now rush i think i think rush it's maybe unfair to compare the damn united to it because rush is a sports film set in the 1970s that is probably like my favorite certainly favorite like fictional sports film you know like now dramatized sports film ever made i i think it's a fantastic film it's not quite my favorite sports film because my favorite sports film is senna because that is a just a masterpiece but rush runs it surprisingly close um what you know while, while telling a kind of an acted story if you look at the wikipedia page for the damn united it's the only example of one of these kind of films that i've seen that has a load of notes like in the plot summary there are there are citation notes which on Wikipedia are usually used to link to citations of something that happened. And someone on this article has gone through various factual details in the plot of the film and corrected them using citation notes. You know, so it describes what happens in the film, and then there's a little hover note that explains what actually happened. Someone, you know, people care so much about this that they've gone to that level to go, no, look, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong. If you look at the entry for Rush, it describes the plot of the film. It has a section later in the article called Historical Accuracy that talks about the fact there there is a major um, change that Rush makes to the, the Hunt Louder mythos, um, which, which is the way that it sets up their rivalry um, as being these two guys from different backgrounds who kind of butted heads in you know across different series and then eventually got together in F1 and, and butted heads with each other. Actually, they came up through um, various racing levels and they, they actually shared a flat together at one point. They were friends earlier on before the rivalry and the film completely does away with that. But that's kind of covered in a section that, that talks about that stuff um, and, and various other little details that are changed. But it's it's not considered that those changes 
are, are, are like negatively affect the film because what the film has decided to do is to tell a story of a rivalry, to strip away a lot of detail, to change some of the details, um, and and out of it you get a more compelling narrative. Um, if I look at the the um, the Wikipedia entry for Battle of the Sexes, I've, I've seen Battle of the Sexes. It's a great film. Um, I don't know actually much about the real life story. People have written articles comparing the film with reality. The Wikipedia article, nobody's bothered to put a section on whether or not there's historical mm. accuracy in that at all. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's interesting that people care more with the Damned United, and I, I think it is because you know it's about it's about Leeds, who are uh, you know a, a club in a big city with a lot of fans who ever since the Revy era have had a very much uh, a backs-to-the-wall siege mentality about the way the rest of football and the rest of the country sees them. Um, and that's something I can empathise with to an extent because I'm a Liverpool fan. Um, but, you know, it's it, I think it is there among Leeds fans. There is, a, there is a defensiveness because the attitude of Leeds fans is we played great football in the 70s. We had some of the best players in the country. We had the best manager. We won titles. You know, people talked about some of the scurrilous stuff that went on, but it was overstated and actually we still deserved it on merit. And that's why Revy is still you know uh, a legendary figure in the city he's you know he's not seen as being tainted by what happened with the with the way he went to england and what happened with england and everything after that but my perspective as a, as a as a film fan and as a, a viewer of this film and as, and as someone who's interested in seeing a story about football told i don't really care about those those big details being different by the same token i do agree with dennis that it's weird the way there are little details that are changed seemingly for no reason. And some of those do bug me. I think it makes sense for the story of this film not to complicate it by showing that Clough went to Brighton for several months. It's easier for the story if he never went to Brighton and he just went straight to Leeds. That is, you know, that is not factually accurate, but I don't think it harms the story to have changed that. And there's a few other things like that that it does, which I think are fine. But randomly changing score lines of matches, <laughs> you know, or, or who an opponent was, is a bit like, well, why have you, why have you bothered there? What's mm. what's the point of that? Especially when they went to the trouble of um, tracking the changes to Leeds United's away kit from blue to yellow, you know, to, to get things like that right. And yeah, then, and like even another little one, like Clough sitting in his office while the game is going on, like that's... That didn't happen, surely. No. Yeah, but that that that's a dramatic thing, and I think that again, that, that I'd see that as a as a as a dramatic choice the film makes that that's for a reason and okay. works, you know. Yeah, but 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 even with that, you hear two massive roars, and so you know it's a home <laughs> game, and you know they've won, and then yeah. he, Taylor comes in and does the fake <laughs> sad face before breaking out in a smile, like you you know what. Uh, what what a, a football fan yeah. celebration yeah. sounds yeah. like, and anyone who knows anything about the foot about football can tell the result of a yeah, match by hearing exactly. the crowd. You could stand yeah, outside any stadium and, and know the scoreline by the end. Yeah, I think um, that well, there's a cu- a couple of things just to wrap this little bit up. The first is that. I mean, any talk of best sports films ever where you don't talk about Rocky Four is just shocking to me, Seb. Um, <laughs> but. I can tell you a little bit of local knowledge from from speaking to a. I have a lot of friends who are Huddersfield Town fans, a lot of friends who are Leeds United fans. I've been to Leeds United games. I've worked Leeds United games in the press box. Um, There's this weird thing with Clough that when when he when he originally left, he left as the villain of the piece. 
you know, Leeds United, he'd come to Leeds United, he'd got things completely wrong, he'd disrespected Reeves' memory, um, and he left as the villain. The problem was that he then goes and wins the European Cups, etc., does absolutely brilliance at Forest. And the narrative changes over time, as it tends to do in football, and suddenly Leeds United become the villains. And Leeds United, it, it suddenly, well, why didn't you stick with him? You know, why? Clearly it was, if you look at what's happened to the two, uh, to, to Forrest and to Leeds, it was now Leeds' fault. And I think the problem is that the film, because it does sort of portray Clough as this hero, and, I mean, let's make no bones about it, Billy Bremner in the film is is a, is the villain of the piece. From, you know, from start, he he's portrayed as, as, as Reeves' best mate essentially and you know general out on the football pitch to the very first time he meets Clough he immediately you know exactly that he's he's going to go against him that he hasn't taken to him that he's going to do everything he can to get out of the job he is portrayed as a villain from start to finish and that is there's no the the problem is when you watch the film and if you're involved in it or if you're a Leeds United fan you're looking at that there's no shades of grey there there's no, there's absolutely no empathy mm. um, in the performance or anything like that. And I can imagine that, yeah, you know, if you are Johnny Giles or if you are someone else, you're watching that. And it, the film is quite, compared to the book, the film is, let's be honest, quite mean-spirited in a lot of regards. In And the most mean-spirited thing it does is it creates Leeds United the sort of entity as almost like a bit of an evil empire that the poor poor young Brian Clough mm-hmm. never even stood a chance with and that's just not right you know there was there were a lot of things that Clough got wrong and i think the book strike strikes a far better balance of you know you you understand that Clough was drinking too much that he was living in the hotel um and wasn't settled that he was desperately trying to recreate something you know and anybody in anybody any walk of life knows that you can't leave one job and go to another and recreate the same situation mm. you know and it just doesn't happen like that so yeah there's there's a far more even-handed approach in the book to that than to the film I understand why the film does it, and that's because in the film you want a classic story structure and you want there to be goodies and baddies, <laughs> essentially. Um, but, yeah, it's... it's I, can, I can understand the problems that individuals involved have, have had with it, I'll be honest with you. I find that interesting, and I remember you saying that when we first started discussing it, because maybe it is just a perspective thing. I think... I think mean spirited I think is is one way to put it. I think I think the I think the film is obviously is less subtle in in how it presents leads and I, and I think a big I think a good comparison point would be the, the the both the book and the film have a big Bremner moment but they're different moments. Mm. Um in the book it's the uh do you ever play at Wembley did you Mr Clough line. And I think the beauty of that in the book is that Clough immediately takes that as a direct stab at him and it and it eats away at him and it's it's basically makes him hate Bremner from then on. But it's just ambiguous enough. Like I think it is a snide dig, but it's ambiguous enough that you know it could be argued that it isn't and actually that it's a more innocent question that Clough has taken that way uh whereas in the film you've just got the good luck in the semi-final line 
which is another example of, of changing history, but that's the, it does simplify the narrative to say that they lose against Juventus because of the injuries, even though that's not what happened. Um, but, you know, that line is unashamedly... Billy Bremner is a shit, <laughs> you know, and, and he's played by Stephen Graham, so you expect that he's going to be like that. But I think that you know that that to me shows how the the the, the book and the film differ in their subtlety. Um, I actually though, we're just 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 to slightly take you up on that point, I I always came when I first read the book, I came out of the book hating Leeds and Revy almost as much as Clough does in it. I was I very much was on his side and saw them as the villains. So to me reading the book, I read that the book was not painting them in a positive light at all. So I'm interested to hear you say that actually you think it gives them a fairer a crack I, I, of the way. Yeah. I don't I don't think it paints them in a positive light, but I think it does give them a fairer hearing than the film does. I think this means that we've got to turn to Dennis for a verdict. Um <laughs> I yeah I, I I would kind of agree that the book does give them a fairer crack, um and what I would say in the mean spiritedness is is that that's glaringly obvious for all to see at the in the end cards with what it says about Don Revy, which is just <laughs> that is mean spirited. Like, that is incredibly mean spirited. If if he wasn't if if he was still alive, they either wouldn't have done it or they'd have you know they'd have had a libel another libel case to to deal with. It, mm. It's just. It, it was needless. It, it really was two, two foot, two two feet studs up, um, just going in over the top. Clough has already been established as the just about coming out on the right side of the hero villain line. By the end, he's back with Peter. They're gonna go on to greatness with Forrest. Why do you need to to have the extra dig at Revy? It, it it's just, it, it's just yeah. nasty. It's nasty. Um. We'll we'll close this up. In terms of the book, it's uh, the book is one of the great football books. I, you know, in publishing, you often see books of sort of you know the ten best, this, that, and the other. In in terms of the football pantheon, there's nothing else quite like it, is there? And I mm. think that gives it a very even uh, David Peace it... proved himself incapable of recreating <laughs> this magic. Yeah, well, red or dead, we've been educating Dennis, who hasn't read it, um, <laughs> about the style. I mean, even Seb struggled as a Liverpool fan. I could not get past the washing up. Bill Shankly doing the washing up. Bill Shankly putting the washing up to one side. Bill Shankly looking out the window. Bill Shankly looking at the fence. Um, it it is it has got a really uh, there's no point saying you know would you recommend it because I think all three of us would categorically not only recommend it it's it's a book you'd buy for somebody who was you know you were trying to get into the hobby weren't you it's, <laughs> it, it really is a brilliant read but the sort of closing question really where do you put the film in the pantheon of of football films which let's be honest it's not it's not a brilliant it's not a great pedigree. You know, there are, we will come on to some in this, there are some truly rotten football films. And you have to take documentaries out of it because there are some brilliant football documentaries. But I'm talking about when you place this against things like When Saturday Comes, uh, you know, even you're you're sort of reaching back and you're thinking, well, what else can you put it against? Can't really put it against Escape to Victory. Can't, it's, it's, it's well up there, regardless of our criticism. As a football-based film, I think it is well up there. You know, I think it's sort of certainly in the top two or three. I would suggest. Well, when it's Clough, should not be the top one, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, point. I, I would agree. I, I would put it up there um, because 
it's based you know however loosely on reality the the plot is already written we don't need uh, a 3-2 win with the goals coming in the last five minutes to, for the payoff <laughs> at the end and I do think that alone put, puts it above the, the other stuff and as as you've also been educating me uh, on, on Mike Bassett because I haven't seen that so I can't compare it to that but any other football films I've seen I don't. I wouldn't be putting any of them on on a higher pedestal than this. No, I mean we'll come to Mike Bassett, and I I have a, <laughs> I'm similar to Seb in that spoilers. Me and Seb love that film and thinks it gets an incredibly bad rap. Yeah, I th- I think that's that's why I think I think this is an interesting comparison to Mike Bassett because, um, you know that I think most people would call this a, a better film. Um, and I think there are lots of ways in which you you can't argue against that. Mike Bassett is a better football film. I I I, per, I do believe that Mike Bassett is the best football film ever made, and it's partly that just as a comedy I enjoy it and it makes me laugh, and I always enjoy rewatching it. But I also think it is the best film about football because I haven't seen another film like a you know a, a dramatized film that gets football enough. Like Mike Bassett is categorically about football, and it's not just about mm. an ethereal concept of football it is very specifically about lots and lots of jokes that only make sense if you have followed the intricate history of english football over the last 20 or 30 years um yeah you know it's it's about football is rooted in that i actually think with the damn united i almost don't think of it as a football film because there's mm. so little football in it. It's about people who are in football. That's what I was sort of tiptoeing around, because it is, it's it's a football-based film yeah. rather than a football film. Um, it's a difficult thing. <laughs> Again, I keep saying this, but as we will get to in further episodes, it's a very difficult thing to capture football and film, mm. particularly at a professional level. One of, the, one of the best instances of capturing football and film is in a film that, I love, but that hardly anybody knows. That's called "There's Only One Jimmy Grimble," and it's mm. it's about a young lad playing football. And because it's junior football and amateur football, it doesn't have to do the work of coming up with a convincing crowd and you know convincing yeah. professional <laughs> players and all that sort of thing. So it works much better. So it, it, here you've got. I the thing is, I go back to that tone. I think what this film what. No, <laughs> The three of us have all got our issues with this, but I think the three of us will all have to say this really does capture a tone of a time and a place really, really well, and of a and of a sort of football world as well. You know, the cigarettes, the whiskey in the boardroom, like Dennis quite correctly said, mm. the FA hearing. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of those things feel sort of note perfect. So, mm. uh, so I think I think the key thing is what I want to sort of get around to is that. Uh, we've been quite sort of evangelical about the book and we've been pretty hard on the film. I think we just need to place that in context and just say the film is still very definitely worth watching. Would you Would you both agree with that? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, with qualification. I, think it, yeah. I still think it's, it, it's not for everyone. Uh, but no, I mean, there's the, there's stuff to enjoy in it, and it's yeah, I mean, it's, it is like it, if you if you kind of immerse yourself in the setting, I think you have to deliberately decide not to care about the stuff that it's not quite getting right in order to enjoy the atmosphere and the performances 
and and the, yeah, the, and and the good things that it's doing of of which uh, there are plenty. But I, I don't recommend it without qualification. But um, yeah, even with all of those qualifications, it is one of the best football films ever made, which I think Oof. tells you a lot about the genre and yeah. the fun we're going to have discussing them. Dennis, yep. Have you ever seen When Saturday Comes with Sean B? Oh, I have indeed, and I I've written an article for Museum of Jerseys on the various kit inaccuracies concealed <laughs> yeah, therein. So I was, I, I was going to say, because the the inaccuracies in that film must drive your mind absolutely <laughs> mad, but we will we will get to that in an episode, and that won't be even-handed. At, at the risk of giving away spoilers, my favourite part of that is how Pete Postlethwaite wears his manager's jacket and tracksuit no matter what he's doing in that film. <laughs> watch it again and anytime you see him he's in that blue and red umbro ferguson style jacket uh yeah it's that and it and it's that it's that it's like that umbro striped yeah, jacket yeah. with the big diamond on the front yeah, isn't yeah. It? it yeah and he, yeah. he's even wearing it when he's driving the car trying to get sean bean to run <laughs> alongside it um right we we're gonna close off the uh the podcast with letting you know a little project we've got in the in the first episode we're just gonna i'm gonna let seb lead and tell you exactly what we're gonna do but we've got a a little project that we're gonna nurse through over various pods that we think might be of some interest to people of a certain age and vintage seb tell the people about somehow i manage (laughs) yeah so somehow i manage is going to be our our fun closing section on the podcast anyone who's listened to any other podcasts um that Dave or I do know that it's a it, it is a, it's a format point, isn't it, to have a, a nice little have to. Uh, yeah. Um, so what we've decided to do for this is uh, we have decided to collaboratively uh, play Championship Manager, uh, and by this we mean we we don't mean competing as as managers. Uh, what we've done is we've started a game of Championship Manager ninety seven ninety eight, which I know there are evangelists for 0102, but I th- I think ninety seven ninety eight is still the purest Champman experience. Um, we started a game. Uh, we 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 deliberated over. I thought it would take us longer to choose a team, um, but we we deliberated and we just we wanted to choose a team that wasn't a team that we all supported. Um, you know, that wasn't too low down, but also wasn't too high up. You know, we didn't want an automatic chance of success. We also didn't want to be completely struggling and not able to buy any players. So we were looking very much for a middle ground kind of team. And ironically, or or deliberately, given the subject matter of of this episode, uh, we've chosen Nottingham Forest in the in the. 97-98 season um, so we're going to manage Nottingham Forest in the first division and the way we're going to play it is that we're going to take it in turns so we'll, we're going to have a bit of initial kind of discussion um, I think if, we, if we've got a few minutes now we'll, we'll maybe have a, a quick uh, discussion of where, where we think the, the squad lies and maybe decisions we might want to make mm. going forwards and then yeah. one of us uh, I think it's going to be probably going to be me to start with Um, we'll take the game away and play it for a little bit between now and whenever we do our next episode so you know, I'll I'll try and get at least a few matches in. You know, again, we haven't really sort of determined exactly how long we'll go, but it's you don't want to do a whole season, but equally you don't want to only do a fortnight. So we'll we'll find a balance of how long to play for. I'll play through for a bit. I'll manage the team for a few matches. You know, make some decisions on transfers, that kind of thing. Uh, then we'll reconvene on the next episode. Um, Dave and Dennis won't know 
what I've been up to, then they're not allowed to check in on the shared save game that we've got on Dropbox <laughs> um, until I report back on the next episode. I will report back on what's happened uh, to their horror or delight, depending on how <laughs> it's gone. Um, look, look forward to me selling Steve Stone because um, he's in demand and get a lot of money for him, but we'll, we'll come to that. Um, and then one of those guys will take over and we'll take it and they'll have to report on the next episode. And we'll do we just have a little few minutes at the end of each episode up, updating each other and indeed all of you listeners on our odyssey as as managers of, of Nottingham Forest in the late 90s and potentially of other clubs if we get sacked by Nottingham Forest and have to find another job elsewhere. I would have thought there's a very good chance of that. <laughs> so, between the three of us, have you got the squad in front of you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'd completely forgotten that Glenn Hodges ever played for Forest. <laughs> <laughs> Rightly so, Dennis, yeah, to be honest yeah. with you. Uh, I think we should have a little run through the squad. It, Dennis, yeah. you've got it in front of you as well. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do you want to run through the squad for us then? Yeah, I because I, I'm just looking at the screenshot. There are some uh, first names which would probably escape me. Um, but Mar- goalkeeper Marco Pascolo is a nice throwback to when I used to subscribe to to world soccer. Like a misspent you was meant to be drinking and smoking and playing snooker. <laughs> I subscribed to world soccer so I could keep my a copy of Sensible Soccer updated. So uh, Swiss goalkeeper Marco Pascolo will be battling it out with Mark Crossley and Pascolo's really good in the game. He only ever played five games for Forest <laughs> in real life, but in the game he's he's got good stats actually. I'm pleased with that. And R Clark I, I presume that's the young guy, is it? Um must yeah. be. Uh, Alan Rogers, who I remember as a left back, he's a, a DRLC here. Yeah, he's, he's down handy. across the back four here, but in, yeah. in slightly later versions of the game, he would I would always buy him as a left back. He's, yeah. he's a bit of a Champman legend. Mm. So I think his versatility will be uh, a big asset in our push for yeah. promotion. Des Little, I presume, will, will be the first choice right back. Or, or Cooper, defender right centre. Um, I, I don't know if he any relation to Colin. Um, and then there's C. Armstrong, Steve Chetland, Colin Cooper, the other centre-backs. Uh, G. Thomas. That's that's Jeff Thomas. Jeff, of course. I thought that, is, that is the Jeff Thomas, age 32 at this point. Yeah. Well, wasn't he more of an MC than a DMC? I, I, yeah, but he's, he's getting old yeah. at this point, so he's having to drop back. And I, yeah. I, I'd forgotten he was with them in the promotion season. I thought he didn't sign yeah. until the summer of 98, and then he got that great goal at Highbury in the, the opening game of the season. Uh, Norwegian legend Jan Olav Hjelde is... Yeah. yeah. He can be another handy for versatility, playing in defensive midfield on both flanks. Uh, Jay Burns midfield right left. He's a nineteen year old Irish midfielder, John Burns. Okay. He could be he could be for the scrap heap, so uh same with D Turner. <laughs> uh we're obviously going with Stone and Warren on the flanks, aren't we? Or are are they well, are see, they gone beyond their this is the dilemma I think we need to discuss because Steve Stone is valued at six and a half million and Arsenal, Blackburn and Newcastle will want him and he wants to move to a bigger club and I think we've got other options especially, I mean he's injured at the moment but especially with Chris Bart Williams um, I wonder do we need Steve Stone or do we want to put that cash elsewhere Yeah, That's a lot of money in that game Yeah, That's a lot of money Hearing about a right midfielder wanted by Arsenal and Blackburn in the 90s makes me wonder if they've messed up the coding and it should be Andy Sinton (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I well, I mean it's not down to us though is it, that's the thing Um, but I 
from from my uh, sort of history playing that game, that is a lot of money. That's yeah. that. I mean, and especially let's be in, honest, in Division One. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. That's two good players, possibly three, isn't it? Out yeah. of one. So. I think. I think it's it's worth noting, by the way, as well, that uh, be, just for those particularly younger listeners who might not realise, this is Chapman ninety seven ninety eight. So there there is. The, I'm not going to say there's no transfer window. There is a transfer deadline quite late in the season, but I'm not the only one who will get to do transfers. Like you know, I'm not going to play until the end of August, and then these guys are stuck with, with whoever <laughs> I bought or sold. Yeah. Uh, you you can buy and sell players. Is it? Is, I think until March. I think is usually yeah. when the cut off is. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Wait till I filled that midfield with Brighton players. Um, so anyway, so Steve Stone and Ian Wone, Dennis. Uh, S. Fitchett. Uh, Scott Fitchett, 18-year-old central midfielder. Okay. 16 for shooting, 15 for tackling, 16 for dribbling. Okay. Uh, he's a bit of a prospect, We, we can actually. probably bestow on him the title so of future England captain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the tabloids always say that as if it's the highest accolade that a young player can have, <laughs> rather than it meaning that you just are hounded by the tabloids when it does materialise. Uh, Scott Gemmell still going strong in the centre midfield. Chris Bart-Williams as an attacking midfielder right centre. I, I would have classed him again as an M, but maybe I'm just thinking too too rigidly in 4-4-2 terms. Mm-hmm. Glyn Hodges, attacking midfielder left centre as mentioned. C. Allen. You can bin him, Seb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's 34. Uh Chris Allen is a, a left-sided attacking midfielder who's got 17 for pace and 17 for dribbling. So, uh, another one to watch out for. Incidentally, also on stats, Chris Bart Williams is currently injured for a month and has injury proneness of 20. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, D. Poole. Darren Poole, 19-year-old uh, English forward. Yeah, 17 like, for injury proneness, 15 for off the ball and not much else. Oh, 18 how, for shooting, actually. How, how useless is that in Championship Manager to be a forward right? I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially at this era. You know, yeah. if, if you were doing it now and you were kind, kind of playing that, you know, the Liverpool-style three up yes, front. Yes, absolutely, but, uh, yeah. We don't have yeah. a forward left to, to balance it up. Mm. Uh, Pierre van Hooydonk is of, not yeah, on strike, well, yes. so he could be... He, he'll be handy either to get goals or to probably raise money if he's sold uh, <laughs> Kevin Campbell uh, Paul McGregor of the band Merck wasn't that the, the name of the band that he played in <laughs> if I recall rightly from an interview in Total Football uh, Steve Guinan uh, probably not up to much Ian Moore uh, Steve Guinan's got decent stats actually Okay. Uh, not, not terrible yeah uh, Ian Moore injured at the moment. Um, I think that was kind of the story of his real-life career too, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, And finally, uh, Torino's finest, Andreas Lindsay. (laughs) (laughs) Good stats for everything except shooting, where he's only a 12. uh... Yeah. I couldn't remember, but we're obviously pre-Lars Bohinen, aren't we? Which is a shame. Um, Post, isn't it? Is it pre or post? Post. He joined. The, he joined Blackburn in ninety five. He um, <laughs> the thing about Lars Bohinen is uh, rightly venerated football writer Daniel Story is uh, a good friend of mine, and we were once, as we used to be prone to do, sat watching YouTube videos over a takeaway, and I was showing him uh, the best football video on uh, YouTube, which is Cruyff's art, and he was watching Johan Cruyff, and he generally turned around and said. 
Yeah, Cruyff reminds me a lot of Lars Bohinen. <laughs> I thought, nah, nah, I'm not really seeing that, Dan, if I'm honest. Uh, so, quite a squad to go at. I think... I think the best thing to do is is to go away. I I honestly think for uh, for the sake of the pod and the listeners, the less me and Dennis know from here on, the better. Really, <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. Uh, uh, so that was episode one of Beyond the Touchline. Um, you can find us on Twitter. Seb will be able to fill in with uh, exactly where once we've grabbed the URLs we need, etc. <laughs> yeah, I usually, uh, I, usually, I usually grab the URLs before starting a new one, but let's I will I will record an insert and put it here <laughs> when, yes. when, we, when we've got everything set up. So, so you'll hear Seb's voice here. Yes, hello. Hello, past Seb and past Dave and past Dennis. Um, this is the insert to tell you where you can hear, uh, where you can find the podcast and, and talk to us and, and get updates on us. Uh, the main headline is that the if you if this isn't if that isn't where you found it already, uh, the podcast can be found at beyondthetouchline.podbean.com um, that's where you can subscribe to the RSS feed you can also find it on iTunes we'll make sure it's added to Google Podcasts and, and wherever else we're, we're capable of adding it to get you to be able to subscribe and listen to it if you want to get in touch with us you can find us at BTTL Podcast on Twitter uh, we had to chuck an extra letter in there because all of the iterations of BTT Podcast uh, <laughs> were already taken so uh, we, we, we added an extra letter uh, for the line in Touchline BTTL podcast uh, and you can also email us if you like at beyond touchline uh, not beyond the touchline beyond touchline at gmail.com um, hopefully you've got your head around all those confusing handles I'm now going to throw back to our past selves lovely thank you Seb uh, so in terms of recording pattern we are not going to be peppering you every week with this we're going to try and make it a little bit more in depth and a little bit more involved and hopefully get you one a month uh, we have lots and lots of topics and subjects to go through we've got lots of ideas of people to speak to about specific topics um, and a couple of projects on everything from fantasy football league to uh, to we will be touching Roy the Rovers uh, in quite some well, depth probably sooner some rather point. than later <laughs> yeah well ad- again to sort of show a little bit how the sausage made this is how the three of us have come together through a love of Roy the Rovers so I can absolutely guarantee you that we're going to touch on the new stuff we're going to touch on the old stuff we're going to touch on the 90s run which we all love touch on the much older stuff talk about the squad talk about the team there will be plenty of Roy coming your way in the not too distant so that was episode one on the Damn United we hope to join you next time see you later bye bye Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.